this podcast is brought to you by the Gosh Learning Academy. Hello and welcome to Master the MRC PCH. In this podcast, we tap into the expertise here at Great Ormond Street Hospital, giving you an overview of a topic on the RCPCH curriculum. You may be revising for an exam or just fancy brushing up on a need-to-know topic. I'm Emma, an anaesthetic registrar and the Digital Learning Fellow at GOSH. Today I'm joined once again by Dr Keir Shields, a general paediatric consultant at Great Ormond Street. Over the next two episodes, he's going to be talking to me about developmental delay, giving me an overview on development, as well as discussing strategies for revision and how to approach this topic, both clinically and for the exam. This will correspond to the neurodisability section of the MRC-PCH curriculum. So, Kia, I'm delighted to have you back on the show once again. Hello. I'm, I'm like a bad smell or a herpes virus, aren't I? <laughs> I, keep, I just keep coming back. Well, it's been a few weeks, so it's, it's good to have you back. I'm going to start by asking the age-old question. What would you like people to get out of this podcast? So that is probably the most interesting question that I have to answer because I almost want to say not much. And what I would like this to be is a general overview of development and how it's approached both clinically and in the exam. And so I'm not going to be going into colossal amounts of detail about every single developmental milestone and every single neurometabolic cause of developmental delay. I don't want to sort of drill down too many rabbit holes because this is a, a topic that, I mean, it's not even one chapter of a textbook. Three chapters of the Lissauer Sunflower textbook are on normal development, developmental abnormalities and how to cope with disability. So to give a general overview and a way of systemizing it and hopefully strategies for how to learn all those developmental milestones without this podcast turning into just a list of when babies coo and when babies start to say their first words and when babies start to say their first word with meaning and blah, 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 because you don't need to listen to me saying that. But having a structure to help you learn would be great. So that's what I'm hoping to do. Fantastic. That sounds great. So I guess to start with talking about developmental issues, there's a few different things that we could mean by that. Could you start by summarizing those issues with development that paediatricians might be faced with? Sure. I think the first question that we need to ask ourselves in our head is actually what is development? Like That's something that we don't really get taught. We get taught about what it is when it goes wrong and what it is when it goes right. But we don't actually get taught a lot about the physiology and anatomy of what is going on. And so development is a sequential acquisition of skills that is predictable with time and is predictable as the nervous system in particular, as well as the musculoskeletal system develops. So you develop your motor skills, for example, in order of how long your motor neurons are. So you get to operate your facial muscles an awful lot more quickly and an awful lot more coordinatedly than your leg muscles, which take much longer. And that's because you're nervous system is myelinating and you've got a huge amount of synaptic plasticity that's trying to coordinate everything. And so your motor system develops simply according to how long the nerve fibers are that are trying to myelinate and the shortest ones myelinate first because they're shorter. 
So it is a medical process. It is a physiological process. And it can go wrong in a variety of ways. So there can be structural and anatomical problems that can get in the way of development. That's fairly obvious that if you're born with arthrogryposis, for example, and your joints are all contracted, you're going to struggle to move. You can have developmental problems that, as well as anatomical, can fall into broadly three categories. So you've got developmental delay, which is where everything is pretty much happening, but it's happening much slower than it should. You can have developmental arrest, which is where development trundles along doing completely normally things and then just stops and you don't acquire any new skills. And you can have developmental regression, which is where you lose skills that you previously were able to achieve. And different pathologies can cause different types of developmental problems. So your classic examples in each of those would be something like Cerebral palsy, where movement is more tricky and therefore more delayed, would be a type of developmental delay. You've got developmental arrest, could be, for example, after a, a long time in hospital, you haven't had the opportunity to practice walking and so forth. So you don't develop running on time and you're just, you're just at, at one developmental stage for a very long time because of illness. And developmental regression would be. Something, for example, like muscular dystrophy, where you're standing, you're walking, you're running around, and then gradually that becomes harder and harder and harder as you lose muscle bulk. So those are the broad categories, developmental delay, developmental arrest, and developmental aggression, taking into account that sort of on the periphery, there are anatomical or functional issues that may also affect development. Thank you. That's a really excellent overview. And how does domain of development fit into that classification so you can develop in you know growth motor fine motor how does that classification kind of fit into that yeah we we like to pretend as pediatricians that development falls into really neat categories and depending on who you talk to there are either four five six or eight really stark categories and people will argue about how linked these categories and domains are for example you certainly can't speak well unless you can hear well. You certainly can't have good fine motor skills unless you can see well. So everything does blur a little bit. But broadly speaking, we try to split development into gross motor skills. Those are skills to do with movement, getting to places, and how we interact with distance in our environment. Fine motor skills, which are to do with dexterity and the manipulation of objects and how we interact with objects and things in our environment. We've got communication as a domain, which is how we interact with other people in our environment, which includes everything from how we speak to how we emote, how we interpret other people's emotions, whether we can take turns, whether we've got good social awareness. And you've got what generally get thought of as tasks of daily living which are things like more advanced skills that overlap multiple domains. So those would be things like using cutlery in order to eat, dressing, toileting, uh, those sorts of skills that require an understanding of society, but also the ability to understand your own bodily function and manipulate objects. So that's a sort of more complex set of skills. 
generally speaking in the exams, you'll be looking at assessing gross motor, fine motor, or social and communication truncated together. Spanning all of those, and I'm sorry that this is a long answer, you've got the different sort of sensory development. So you've got your visual skills and you've got your auditory skills. And those overlap, but those are really important because as I said, you can't, you know, you can't walk to the shops if you don't know where the shops are. You can't pick up a phone if you can't see it. So everything does interact slightly. And so audio and visual do form a little umbrella over the others as well. So what do we mean when we say that a child has global developmental delay? I think this is a really interesting question because most people get this wrong. And I think so many people get it wrong that we almost need to change our definition of, of what it is to the wrong definition because so many people used it. Technically speaking, an isolated developmental delay is a developmental delay in one domain. So only gross motor problems. So your fine motor skills are absolutely fine, but you are delayed in your gross motor skills. So a really sort of obvious and facile example would be not having any legs, right? You can't walk, but your dexterity is fine. Your social and communication skills are fine, but you have not met milestones that are charted out appropriately. You've got an isolated problem in gross motor skills. Technically speaking, the different domains of development are also overlapping. That We say that a child has global developmental delay if a child has developmental problems in two or more categories. And so you can have problems with your gross motor and your fine motor skills whilst still being incredibly intelligent, having great audiovisual abilities, being an expert in social communication. And yet we would say that you have global developmental delay. And most people sort of coming naively to development would think that global meant whole development problem, a development problem in all of the domains. And that's not what it means. It means that there are at least two domains that you've got a problem with. And I don't know how I feel about that as a, as a definition. I think that it's got a very strict definition and we should sort of keep to it, but it does frustrate patients and parents when they've got this label of global developmental delay, when they've actually got an awful lot of abilities in many areas. And it's one of those sort of labels that goes on an educational and healthcare plan that helps you get some help, but it really just sort of suggests how serious the problem is rather than what the problem is. It's sort of like the CRP of development. It gives you an idea of how bad a problem is without actually going into a huge amount of detail. And, and as we know, you can have a very high CRP with a viral infection just like you can have global developmental delay with a couple of developmental problems. So it's not a very useful term, in all honesty, but you will come across it a lot. And it will often be used synonymously with developmental delay in all areas, but it technically isn't. So be careful when you read that in an exam. Yeah, okay. So I guess what you're saying is that whilst it can point to the magnitude of a problem, it doesn't necessarily help with diagnosis. That's right. So is there any way that categorizing an issue with development can help with diagnosis? Yes, it is important to be able to categorize these problems because that forms part of your diagnostic sieve. 
So if you can work out that a child has got problems in, say, fine motor coordination, it guides you towards how you're going to investigate things and which professionals need to be involved. Because when it comes to development, we as paediatricians are not the be all and the end all. We have to rely on a huge team of specialised healthcare professionals who've got areas of knowledge that we lack. And so occupational therapists and physiotherapists and speech and language therapists and audiologists and educational psychologists and portage teachers and special educational needs teachers. And I could go on and on and on. There is a litany of people who are far better qualified than we are to be able to assess people. And so that's where community paediatrics, neurodisability paediatrics really forms its MDT. And you can't just refer every child to everyone. It's got to be targeted. So being able to say, well, this child is engaging me in eye contact and is smiling and is reaching for objects, but is not yet speaking, that suggests that, you know, maybe we should be going down an audiology and speech and language route. But at the moment, we don't need to bother the physiotherapists and the occupational therapists. If that child is four and is only just doing those things, then, you know, you need a, a much wider assessment. So looking at the age, looking at the domain gives you an idea of how broad your assessment needs to be in order to achieve a diagnosis. So something that you've just touched upon there is that to know when there's an issue with development, you kind of have to know what normal development is. Do you have any way beyond just kind of memorizing of helping you to think or remember the kind of typical milestones at each age and what is normal at each age? This is without doubt the hardest question in paediatrics for people sitting exams. How do you learn it? Because when you're a doctor, you don't actually have to have learned it. You can have a chart on the wall. You're allowed to look it up. You're allowed to have a memory bank on the wall that you can point to to parents and say, look, at this age, you should be doing X, Y. And, and the parents will come with their red book that's got a sort of developmental chart in it of skills that they should be ticking off like a Michelin eye spy guide. But of course, in an exam, you're not allowed that, which is sort of slightly unfair. It's nice to be able to remember it, just like it's nice to be able to remember the clotting cascade and brachial plexus and all the other things that we forget. But yes, there are strategies that you can use to remember it for exams. So the way that I did it, for example, was to create a narrative story. And I think this is a very good technique for being able to remember things because it allows you to use multiple different stimuli rather than just a list. So I want you to imagine that your alarm clock goes off at six o'clock in the morning and one minute past six, you sort of grimace because the alarm clock is a painful stimulus and you're not really happy with it. And that allows you to remember that at one minute past six, that is like being one month old. And so at one month old, you can react to painful stimuli, you can grimace, you can move your mouth and face a bit. And then by two minutes past, you're trying to look at your alarm clock and you can sort of lift your head up a little bit to try and look around for it. And you've got a bit more control of your face by two minutes past six. And that's what you can do at two months old. And then by four months old, you're actively looking for your alarm clock and you were lying on your back 
But in order to reach over to your bedside table, you were able to roll up onto your front and you can start sort of reaching out for your alarm clock, but not quite get it. And you may sort of give a little bit of a grunt or a laugh or something at the same time. And that allows you to remember that at four months old, at four minutes past six, you can follow an object, you can roll over and you can maybe sit up just with your arm against the wall or up against the back of the bed. You can sit with some support at sort of four, five, six months. So by five past six, you're sitting up a little bit in bed, but leaning against the wall and trying to grab that alarm clock. By six months old, you've picked the alarm clock up and you've taken it from your left hand and put it into your right hand. And and you're you're starting to sit up a bit more properly and you're fiddling with the alarm clock. You can't press the button, so you start sort of grunting at it and babbling at it and swearing at it and so on and so on. So that's a, a stupid story about waking up with your alarm clock. But because you've got a clock, you've got it telling the time. And so every minute on the clock that goes by represents a month and every 10 minutes can represent a year. So by 10 past, you can get out of bed and walk. So I'm not going to give you the full story because you've got to create it yourself. And in, in creating it, you actually add those developmental milestones to your story yourself. And by creating it, it's a great revision exercise. So that's how I learned developmental milestones. So you create these silly stories and it sticks. And I guess the kind of creating it for yourself is important as well, because that's the process of learning it. It is. I'm a big believer in creativity, actually, as a form of learning. Maybe it's a paediatric thing, but it's something that I really recommend to people who are revising for exams, that if you are just reading or if you are just trying to stick stuff in tables or use flashcards, you're not using the fully developed brain that you have. And actually employing some of that more social and artistic side really helps. So, you know, drawing anatomical maps of the brachial plexus as if they're London underground lines, I found really helpful. Replacing the clotting factors in the clotting cascade with faces that are numbered. So whether it's people who are on a football team who wear certain numbered shirts, I used the actors who played Doctor Who. So, you know, I've got a picture of David Tennant as Factor 10 and Peter Davidson as Factor 5 and John Hurt as that weird Von Willebrand's factor that's somewhere between eight and nine, but doesn't really count. And once you put faces on a piece of paper, you suddenly remember that like John Pertwee's next to Sylvester McCoy, and that becomes easier to remember than factor three and factor seven form part of a pathway together. So harness your creativity when you're revising, because I'm one of the few people that can remember the clotting cascade, and I'm not a hematologist. I just like Doctor Who. But you see, the, the important thing is that these things are individual. So, like, I'm sure that if I gave the Doctor Who themed clotting cascade to 20 doctors, 19 of them would use the clotting cascade to remember which actor played Doctor Who rather than the other way around. You've got to harness your own knowledge, your own passions and your own creativity in order to do this. So, yeah, I can tell you what worked for me. But the biggest mistake that people make in education is saying this works for me, therefore so it is the way to learn it. Mm. And that's, you know, going back to development, that is also the mistake that a lot of parents and a lot of doctors make when they're trying to help people with their developmental problems. They say, well, this worked for me, therefore it is the solution. And it needs to be bespoke 
for the child in question. I realise that's a very strange segue. And it's a bit night's move to go from like the Doctor Who clotting cascades back to paediatric developmental strategies. But it's true. You've got to harness individuality when you're trying to teach and learn. Sure. And I mean, linking it back to development again, highlights that there is some individuality in the way children develop, that, you know, the milestones are just that. They're a guide. They're not an absolute rule. Absolutely. That's very true. And we're becoming more and more aware of neurodiversity, for example. So, you know, you take children who have got autism spectrum disorder, who naturally fall into a sort of social and communication delay bracket, whether they are verbal or nonverbal, but you can use some of the stereotypical obsessional interests or whatever actually to guide their development and their education. So if they're obsessed about trains, for example, then you get them to look at how to share those and how to interact with those in a different way and harness their individuality and help them learn through it. They're never going to learn to take turns by playing Cluedo if they're interested in trains. So harnessing individuality is, is, is really important. Yeah, okay. So recognizing your strengths and the strengths of others, I suppose, is an important message. So I think that's all we've got time for in this first part of this podcast on developmental delay. But we hope you can join us again next week where we're going to be talking a little bit more about some of the factors that can confuse and confound the assessment of development in children, as well as a bit more about investigation of developmental delay and an approach to thinking about referral for ongoing management. Thank you for listening to this episode of Master the MRCPCH. We would love to get your feedback about the episode and get your ideas for future topics that you would like to hear covered. You can find a link to our feedback page in the description for the episode or email us at digital.learning at gosh.nhs.uk. If you want to hear more about the work of the Gosh Learning Academy, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram and LinkedIn or visit our website at www.gosh.nhs.uk and search Learning Academy. We hope you enjoyed this episode and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.